I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. How with the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. Cavalier basketball is back. Not in the way we all hoped. We'll get to that in a moment. But thank you for joining me. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. And this is the Fear the Fro podcast. I have been waiting for this day all summer since I launched this very podcast at the most inopportune time to launch a podcast right after most of free agency had taken place. So you got to hang around as we debated things like Matt Ryan, Fiandu, Sfi Mikhailuk, and other various possibilities during this summer. But we've arrived here today only to watch what was one of the most disappointing preseason starts I think any of us could have hoped for. But, hey, what's the refrain? It's only preseason. It doesn't matter. We're just trying to figure out rotations. Well, hold on to that, because there's not much else you can take from tonight's game. The Cavaliers got run off the court by the Chicago Bulls by a score of 131-95. to The Cavs were in it, till they weren't. 7-5, trailing the Chicago Bulls. Next thing you know, a couple block shots coming from guards on the Bulls roster, and they open up a lead 16-5. In comes Ricky Rubio. In comes Kevin Love. And we cut the lead to just five points near the end of the first quarter. But heading into the second quarter, things get ugly. And the Bulls immediately rip off a 36-point quarter, outscore the Cavs by 15, and go into halftime leading by 21 points. First game jitters. They'll calm their nerves. The Cavs will come out in the second half. We'll salvage a respectable showing out of it. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. The Bulls hung 44 on the Cavs in the third quarter. At one point, the score was 90-50. to The Cavs were trailing by 40. So the fourth quarter, well, it was garbage time. But silver lining, they did outscore the Bulls by five in the fourth, to lose only 131 to 95. Okay, that's the numbers. There's nothing really to focus on if you look at the team stats that's a positive. The Cavs shot an atrocious 36% from the floor, 30% from three, took over 33-point attempts. But the real story of this game was sloppy ball handling. A lot of turnovers, a lot of steals and blocks for the Bulls, and their big physical wings, they got into the Cavs early. They forced turnovers, they jumped passing lanes, and it was a block party out there. If you came into this game never having seen Javante Green play, you may have been wondering to yourself, who is this guy that's in their starting lineup? And my thought when I saw that he was starting tonight was, wow, I'm surprised that he leapfrogged Troy Brown Jr. I would have thought that they would have started him. But Javante Green was excellent. The smallest starter on the Bulls' entire roster at only 6'4", His final stat line, 13 points, 8 rebounds, 4 of them offensive, 4 blocks, and 2 steals. If I told you Evan Mobley came away from tonight with that as his stat line, 13, 8, 4 blocks, 2 steals, that would be an incredible debut. And the Bulls got that out of the smallest guy on their entire roster. Now, it didn't end there. They got 2 blocks from DeRozan. They got two blocks and three steals from Lonzo Ball. They got three steals from Zach Levine to go along with 25 points, four three-pointers, and over 50% shooting from the floor. It was a clinic. Vooch, they didn't really even need him. 0 for 5 from 3, but it didn't matter. 
contributed across the board in other ways, had a steal, a block, 10 points, nine boards, four assists. That has got to be about as good as they could have hoped for. Lonzo Ball looked like a seamless fit amongst their offense. And Javante Green, what a physical guard that guy is. It was interesting watching both him and Caruso. Caruso had a lot of times in the second half where he was fighting with Mobley to prevent Mobley from being able to seal him too deep on the block. That guard rotation for the Bulls looks night and day different than it did last year. Kobe White, of course, didn't even play. The guys they have out there are physical players, and Kobe White, of course, would be there for shooting. Enough about the Bulls. I'm just trying to explain how the Cavs could have got roughed up as badly as they did, and you have to tip your hat. Now, if I was to turn to the Cavs, there are some silver linings to how they played. Not many of them. You kind of have to work to find them. But this first game, I was pretty pleased with what we saw out of Evan Mobley. In the summer league, there were times where he looked like he was pressing, and obviously his stats weren't good in terms of percentages. But amongst other talented players, I thought he looked like a pretty seamless fit along any big that the Cavs decided to roll out. Now, Allen wasn't hitting his shots. He was fumbling the ball a lot. So statistically, that's not really supported. But I thought he looked like he could play alongside Lowry. I thought he looked like he could play alongside Love or Allen, despite them having vastly different skill sets. So I think that bodes well for the idea that Mobley will get significant minutes no matter what spot on the court it's at. And if you look at the damage he did in the third quarter, it wasn't jump shots. He was managing to find a way to get open in the block and to clean some stuff up on the glass. Now, I didn't have super high expectations in terms of how well Mobley would be able to rebound, not just because he's on the lighter side for a big, but he also tends to be a guy who likes the ball on the high block, and I thought pulling him away from the basket would mean that the majority of our rebounds are going to come from Jared Allen. And while, yes, he did lead the team in rebounding tonight, Jared Allen, Mobley, I thought, was very solid on the boards. So that was a positive sign. I thought in the third quarter, he had a nice little stretch offensively where his first offensive possession in the first quarter, it was just an atrocious travel. He tried to do too much. You could tell he was overthinking. But by the third quarter, when there was nothing left to play for, I thought he played a little more deliberately, and he had a nice little run before we pulled everybody out and put in the bench squad. So I liked what we saw out of Evan Mobley. Second silver lining, Kevin Love. Now he only played 11 minutes, but he didn't miss a single shot. Two for two from three. And it was in large part because of him and Ricky Rubio that when the Cavs gave up that big scoring spurt to the Bulls in the first quarter, they largely inspired the run that cut that lead to five points. Didn't end up mattering. It got blown back open. The game got away from the Cavs. But Kevin Love, if he can stay healthy and if he's willing to, you know, give his all when he's out there, if it doesn't become a problem where his role leads him to want to buy out, and that's only time will really tell that. When we saw before the game that Kevin Love was indeed going to come off the bench, I think we all expected that. But Kevin Love in media day, let's not forget, this was what Kevin Love said when he was asked at media day if he had spoken to J.B. Bickerstaff and Kobe Altman about his role this season. 
Kevin, have you had a conversation with JB or Kobe about what your role is going to be? How do you envision it? Uh, no, I haven't. I think that's probably a conversation that, um, you know, will happen over the next, you know, week or two. But, you know, those are two guys that I'll continue to have conversations with and, you know, we'll see. That had me a little bit worried at the time he might be expecting to start for the team. But seems like he's taking it in stride. And my hope is if you can ignore the money that Kevin Love makes, I am hopeful that he's going to have a big season. In part because of something I think we saw a little bit of tonight. He and Ricky Rubio seem to have a very solid chemistry. And with Lowry Markinen playing some minutes alongside him, and Evan Mobley being able to slide over to the five effectively. I mean, those are guys who all command some gravity on offense. Gravity that Jared Allen doesn't necessarily. Kevin Love is going to find himself with an ideal opportunity to take maximum advantage of the looks that he can command coming off the bench. The opposite of the benefit that Mobley has seen. Mobley, I think, will do better than we expect because he's playing along better offensive options. He's not going to be expected to have to do too much. Defensively, we have Allen as the anchor. Offensively, we have both those guards who should be taking a high volume of shots. We don't need him to carry the offense. We don't even need him to carry the defense. We just need him to take advantage of whoever's guarding him and make sure that he's somebody that has to be respected on both ends of the floor. In the bench unit, Kevin Love now gets a chance to be a more high-volume guy, to take open shots and who can score on an NBA level. And I think having Kevin Love off the bench will prove to be a big asset because we can all acknowledge that there's a good chance the Cavs will be playing from behind a big chunk of this season. I think we'll get a much better showing as they take on the Hawks in game number two, at least fingers crossed. Positives can be taken from Mobley's performance, from Kevin Love's performance. Ricky Rubio, the shooting was bad. You saw exactly what they brought him in for. He came in off the bench, steady hand, made good decisions. He just couldn't hit a shot, and he couldn't finish well around the rim tonight. He certainly wasn't hesitant to take the shots, though. So if J.B. Bickerstaff puts a premium on taking early three-point looks when you have them, well, then Ricky Rubio listened. He just didn't hit many of those shots. Hopefully, he'll be a little more effective as he gets a rhythm and we get into the flow of the preseason and the regular season. It was curious to see the Cavs down by 20. They didn't bring a Coro out to start the second half. They rolled out a three-guard rotation coming right out of the half of Rubio, Sexton, and Garland. A Coro had an extremely quiet night. It's hard to say he had a bad night. It just it almost felt like he wasn't even there. He had one play where he jumped the passing lane pretty aggressively. He didn't end up stealing it, but he knocked it off the a Bulls player in the second half. And at that point, I thought, oh, a Coro's back out there. But by and large, he didn't do much of anything tonight. I don't know what we can expect to see from any of those deeper rotation guys. Windler, Valentine, Pangos, Lamar Stevens, even Dean Wade. They didn't make it into the game until the end of the third quarter or the fourth quarter. Cavs played with a pretty tight rotation. Outside of their five starters, we saw Chetty Osman, we saw Ricky Rubio, we saw Kevin Love, and we saw Lowry Markinen. That was basically it. So here's hoping for a better showing tomorrow against Atlanta as the Cavs take on what should be a better team in the conference than the Chicago Bulls, but who knows? Every day is a chance to prove yourself all over again. Silver lining, friends!
Chin up. Here's a rough segue coming. Speaking of no-shows, Ben Simmons' holdout continues. New information on that front today, as Kyle Newbeck tweeted the following. After receiving a big fine for missing last night's preseason game, a loss to the Raptors, by the way, sources say Ben Simmons' representation spoke to the Players Association and had it reiterated the money could not be recovered, a potential sign that the weight of a holdout is setting in. So Kyle's article goes on to detail how perhaps Rich Paul and Ben Simmons' camp weren't expecting the financial part of this holdout to play out the way that it did. All the stories around the time training camp began were that Simmons was owed half his money as of October 1st. I mean, Winhurst said specifically it would empower him to embrace a long holdout. I mean, the implication was that he'd be able to live on that money. In fact, what happened was the Sixers took that money and they held it in an escrow account against which they are drawing these fines out as he misses practices and games and different team functions like media day. So if Simmons eventually gets traded, Kyle Newbeck's tweet and the article that went along with it detailed how Rich Paul or sources say that Rich Paul's people went to the league to find out, is this money recoverable? And were informed that no, in fact, it will not be. This holdout will not be something that does not come at a financial detriment to Ben Simmons, which may force a resolution sooner than later. Now, we were led to believe that Ben Simmons was okay with the fallout of sitting out. And maybe that's true. This is all just sources. There's no quotes on the book from Rich Paul or Ben Simmons. But if you're not a fan of players just disregarding their contracts, it will be one of those situations where actions have some kind of consequences. I think some of us looked at this and thought, there's no way they're going to find him. They're not going to want to destroy their relationship with Rich Paul. They have another Rich Paul client on the roster in Tyrese Maxey, but the Sixers seem willing to play hardball. Now, it is interesting also in Kyle's article, he talks about how Rich Paul and Ben Simmons' agents keep trying to find an angle to get more public sentiment on their side. They've used the comments that were made in the aftermath of their playoff loss to the Hawks. They suggested that Ben Simmons is being judged unfairly because unlike a lot of first overall picks, He was dropped into a roster that was expected to compete right away. Although he wasn't really because he missed his entire first season. He had the benefit, as evidenced by his Rookie of the Year award, that he was able to learn and physically grow. He added 15 pounds of muscle during that year off that he had while he was injured his rookie year. Came back, won Rookie of the Year, beat out Donovan Mitchell, even though he wasn't truly a rookie. So I don't know if I buy that whole argument that somehow he was at a disadvantage for being dropped into a situation where Joel Embiid was. But, according to Rich Paul or sources around Rich Paul, that was an unfair thing for Ben to have to face because it might have stunted his development, having such lofty team expectations on the Philadelphia 76ers. Having the added attention might be difficult, but I don't know many rookies who would complain about being dropped into a winning environment. If anything, you would think that would breed the best possible habits. It's hard to know exactly what to believe until Rich Paul or Ben Simmons go on the record, which is not going to happen, seemingly. But my hope is that all this stuff that we're hearing about, oh, they're they're nervous or they don't want to get the money, actually matters to them. If that's true, then hopefully we'll get some sort of public comment out of Ben Simmons, or public action at least, even if that's 
I've showed back up, guys. <laughs> Can I please get a paycheck now? I don't really believe it. I don't think Rich Paul would cave this quickly. I think it would be a very bad look. So I expect the holdout to continue. But a lot of drama there. Also, a lot of drama in Brooklyn. Big storyline from last week at Media Day was how the vaccination mandates were going to prevent Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins from playing in their respective home games because in both Brooklyn and in Golden State, it was against the law. Wiggins got very defiant. What's the reason for not just explaining what you believe? Because it's none of your business. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> you know, who are you guys who have to explain what I believe or, you know, what's right, what's wrong in my mind? We're two totally different people. You know, what you think is not what I think. What I think is not what you think. Well, if what we thought last week was that you should get vaccinated and you eventually thought, well, I should get vaccinated, then what we think is what you think and what you think is what we think. Is it not? And which is what the Warriors are hoping to get for $35 million. His feelings became far less defiant and far more accommodating when it became clear that there would be no religious exception and that money would, in fact, be taken away from him. So as it relates to Kyrie, though, nothing has changed on that front. There is no news as to whether he plans to get vaccinated. I don't know how this situation resolves itself in any type of positive way for the Nets. This isn't a guy that you can afford not to have around for your title run. Maybe they could win it without him. I suppose it's possible. Cam Thomas was excellent in his first preseason game, so that's a rookie who's going to be exciting to watch for the Nets. But he's no Kyrie Irving. It would be nice to get some clarity as to what his plan of action is. But then I also wouldn't put it past Kyrie to be a guy who just all of a sudden, oh yeah, I'm vaccinated. No, I planned to the whole time. You guys were assuming I was anti-vax. I never said that. I just hadn't done it yet. I was going to do it on my own time. I just needed to get some things in order and do my research or something. I'm just guessing. Whatever we think the course of action for Kyrie is, he's consistently throwing curveballs out there. Or flat balls, I guess. Flat earth balls. Regardless, either way, until then, I'm on Team Cam Thomas. Here's what I secretly hope happens. This isn't secret if I'm saying it on a podcast. I hope Cam Thomas dominates during preseason. I hope he lights up people who are considered far more ready on the NBA level, and he puts the Nets in a situation where they truly start asking themselves, do we really need this guy? Is it really worth the headache? Because, of course, Kyrie has the luxury of playing alongside some of the greatest players in the history of the NBA. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, now James Harden. I think about Scottie Pippen, how he was, you know, Jordan's running mate, and that's effectively what Kyrie was to LeBron. And both those guys have that kind of undercurrent narrative of resentment that caused Scottie Pippen to sit out when the shot wasn't called for him, after Jordan was gone, of course. But then you've got Kyrie, who wanted to be traded because he wanted his own team. But that didn't even last very long, because right now he's back to the same situation he was on in Cleveland, where he's the second star, or arguably the third star, because Harden's there now. Unlike Pippen, he wasn't happy as the lead guy in Boston, didn't want to stay there. He wasn't happy as LeBron's running mate. Now he's Durant's running mate, who certainly just seems to be focused solely on basketball. It's still not, you know, roses and rainbows. I thought this was just about going home to Brooklyn and winning titles and forging your own legacy, and yet your legacy is still becoming more and more that you're just a very difficult person to bring into a team environment. And the shame in all of this is you see the news that Harden is going to wait until the offseason to deal with his contract stuff. He's not going to extend early. I get it. 
if you're Harden. One year can be an eternity in the NBA. And with Kyrie doing this again, I would want to wait if I'm Harden. Because this situation could just completely derail a team if Kyrie lets it. And again, it may never happen. I guess what I wish is he would just stop screwing it up for these all-time great transcendent type players like LeBron and Kevin Durant and James Harden. I realize it's selfish, but I just wanted to see that trio at full power. I wouldn't be rooting for them, mind you. I didn't want them to win. But I do want to see what those three together are capable of. And it's still over a full year into this, and I feel like we're not any closer to having that happen. And it may not even happen in a home game this year. I wonder where we'll be in a year when Simmons is on some probably trash team. And I hope it's not the Cavs, because this would be an unfortunate soundbite to bring back. Or... Kyrie, will he still be in Brooklyn? I think the smart money is yes, but I also think the smart money is that Kyrie Irving is completely unpredictable. One other story today that dominated a lot of headlines was around DeAndre Ayton and the Phoenix Suns, breaking off extension talks at the moment because the Phoenix Suns apparently are unwilling to extend him on a full rookie max contract, which is a substantial amount of money, five years, $207 million. That's in line with the contract extension that Trey Young signed, that Michael Porter Jr. just signed, and a lot of people balked at the Michael Porter Jr. one. I personally don't know that the Phoenix Suns should extend him on those terms, in part because on a surface level, if you look at Michael Porter Jr. and DeAndre Ayton, you can obviously say that Ayton has been more consistent. He's been hurt less. He did have that suspension that was related to steroids, I believe, but He hasn't been injured that much, whereas Porter Jr., he missed, you know, the whole first season. He had some back issues in the playoffs, which wreaked havoc, and they got swept by the Suns. While his skill set is very unique, Michael Porter Jr., of course, an excellent three-point shooter, still a great rebounder for a big who can stretch the floor like he does, and an elite offensive, high-efficiency type player who has suspect defense, whereas Ayton might not be this high-volume scorer, But he is definitely what I would consider a two-way big. He's a solid defender, even though many suspected that that would be a liability coming into the NBA. He's proven to be pretty good there, and he's the type of fill-in-the-gap center that is excelling alongside an elite scorer like Devin Booker and an excellent floor leader like Chris Paul. So a guy who will definitely be in the Suns' long-term plans. But to this story... It would be easy to overreact and say, what are the Suns doing? Why aren't they giving this guy max money? He's, he's young, he's great, but he also plays a position that I don't know needs to command a maximum salary, especially when you have his restricted free agent rights. The Suns really don't have any reason to need to rush this. I would probably be hesitant to pay a center upwards of $40 million a year as well. There may only be two centers. I'd have to look to see who else I might be forgetting, but I wouldn't pay Rudy Gobert a max myself, even though he got one. Embiid, Jokic, yes, absolutely. Max them. You could even make the argument that Jared Allen got paid too much. We might end up regretting that contract. And you're talking about a deal for DeAndre Ayton that would be worth over twice that. To play, at best, the third option. He's also coming up at the same time that Mikhail Bridges is coming up for his extension, and which guy do you prioritize? I mean, you want to retain them both. You probably will retain them both. But I think you could make the argument that Bridges might actually have a little bit more market value in the modern NBA. 
you typically see good wing players who may not be the top option on their team getting deals around $20 million a season. Whereas with centers, for you to crack $20 million, you're usually one of the most elite centers in the league. Guys like Vooch, guys like Jokic and Bede, Gobert. Will Ayton be one of those top centers? Possibly. But will he be a Jokic-level center or an Embiid-level center? Almost certainly not. If I'm the Suns, I would match whatever deal is offered to him next summer. But the chances of a team coming with a max-level offer sheet, first of all, even if they do, it's going to be an outside team's max for seasons. So they would at least be able to lock him in for a little less guaranteed money. Who did we see test that this summer? There was nobody that matched an offer sheet that I can even think of off the top of my head. Almost everyone who moved, who could have had restricted free agency, keep them in the same spot, they worked out signing trades, like Lonzo Ball did, or even like Lowry Markkinen did. So I respect the Suns for not rushing to just pay Aiton, because much like Sexton, I think you should show some hesitation. Don't overpay a guy just because he has value to your team. He's still going to have value when you retain him, but you might as well lock him into the most favorable terms possible. There's some strong parallels between Aiton and Sexton, and I think it would do the Cavs a service for them to look at how the Suns are handling it and handle it in a similar way. If you can't come to an amicable, fair market deal for Sexton now, take your chances in restricted free agency because teams are scared to try to use offer sheets knowing that it's not only going to take a hefty offer, but usually an asset to pry a guy loose. So that's it. That's what I wanted to touch on. Cavs are back against the Hawks for game number two in the preseason. But until then, check out past episodes of the Fear the Fro podcast. Like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get yours, and leave a review, please, if you feel so inclined. You can follow me on social media at Fear the Fro Pod. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, and this has been another Fear the Fro podcast. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro It's over! Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel! Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.